The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Look, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus is giving his last sermon to the people of his day. A sermon, a message containing a reminder of his teaching, a challenge to respond to him, a warning for those who would not respond, and a promise to those who would respond. And it's a section where Jesus began to call his people to himself. It began with a blind man who had been born blind, and it ends in verse 36 here, where this is his last public appeal to people to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Verse 36 again says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now the next section of the gospel, chapters 13 to 17, contain Christ's uh, private teaching to those who are his own. Therefore, there are no more public pleas from Christ at this point. And John's going to conclude this section with verses 37 through 50 with a three-part conclusion. First, there is an analysis of the stark fact of Israel's unbelief, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But second, there is an acknowledgement that some did believe in verses 42 through 43. And then third, the resume of, of Christ's teaching. But this morning, I want us to focus our attention on the unbelief. Now, Jewish unbelief has been a recurring theme throughout the gospel. So it's no surprise that John brings this account uh, of Jesus' public ministry to to an end with this unbelief. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. And, And it's striking that Israel would not receive him, and that they would eventually crucify God's Messiah. It's difficult to understand how these Jewish leaders, with all their intelligence, with all their training, with all their understanding of a coming Messiah and everything he would do, would would reject him. Could this mean that God has changed his mind and cast out his very people? Did it mean that events had taken God by surprise? The importance of these questions are dealt with very specifically by the Apostle Paul in John chapter 9, or chapter 9 through 11, in which Paul really digs in deep and goes into these to explain exactly this whole concept of Israel and did God reject them and did he turn them away. And so for the next few minutes, I want to take you to Romans. I want you to come to Romans with me, and I want you to hear Paul's heart for these people. And I want to begin in Romans chapter 9, and beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and that I was cut from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here is a man who so loves his people that he would wish that he himself could lose his salvation in order that they might be healed. That's a man with incredible love for his people. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessings forever. Amen. So he recounts who these people are. Adoption belongs to them. Glory belongs to them. Covenants belong to them. The law, the worship. And not only that, the very Savior of the world came through them. This is the the heart of Paul. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the simplistic formula. And it was the same for Israel. And so Paul is just shouting to these people, shouting that God loves him, God chose them, they're his people, but you're not accepting his Messiah. Now, this will become very clear in Romans chapter 11, and hang with me because I'm going to read through the first 14 verses, but I think if you follow along, you'll begin to really sense what Paul is saying here. Verse 1, chapter 11. I ask them, has God rejected his people by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now listen carefully to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their trespass, by their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. So this is precisely what John is dealing with in this passage. Now, while John does not go into the depths that Paul does, John is carrying the same thought. John asks, why is it that the nation as a whole did not believe? The answer he gives is that the unbelief of the Jews is in accordance with prophecy. John chapter 12, verse 37 through 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this is very significant because the prophecy that John quotes are the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 53. The chapter begins with, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer is no one. Because Isaiah 53.3 then says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So this is so remarkable because the Messiah was to speak such great words and perform such amazing miracles. The message was not believed. The signs of the miracles were not interpreted. And John also indicates that Jesus spoke wisely and acted powerfully, yet the people of his time did not respond to him. However, John's question of Isaiah cannot be construed in any way to lessen the responsibility of men and women to accept Christ. It's true, by their disobedience, the people of Christ's day fulfilled Scripture. In fact, verse 38 said, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what what he heard from us, and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? So it is also true, as the next verses show, And as a result of their disobedience, God increasingly blinded their eyes so they could not see or understand or be converted. Look at verse 39 to 40. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eye and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But understand that John does, not, John does not minimize human responsibility. Consequently, the theme of the passage is more marveling that the people of Christ's day could, have, could disbelieve, particularly with the amazing miracles in the words of Jesus. How could they simply miss it? So in view of this emphasis, we really need to take a look at a word, Okay. And the word is found in verse 38. And the word is that. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now the word can mean 
in order that, which would tend to put the blame for their unbelief on God. But it can also mean so that or consequently. So then the verse may be translated, they believe not consequently the saying of Isaiah was fulfilled. John's point is not that God made them disbelieve, but rather that we should not be surprised by by their disbelief because it had been prophesied beforehand. Anyone who is away from God is away because of his or her, her own decision. Men and women departed from God in Adam, and they remain cut off from God because they prefer their own will to God's will, and they will not have Christ to be their Savior. So this brings us to the very, very difficult point on your outline. Does God harden so they can't believe? This has been a major debate down through the centuries. And depending on how you've studied and who you've studied under, I'm sure you've got a lot of different views. So let's, let's wade through it. Well, he begins with Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Is God just, is God just in blinding the hearts of a life? Now remember, we are all on our way to a Christless eternity. There is no one that deserves salvation. For we are all sinners. Every one of us, from the time of Adam and Eve on, are born sinners, deserving eternal punishment. We have no grounds to rebuke God on any of this. In fact, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, Paul said, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy and on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now that's a tough thing to grasp and there is only one of two ways that you can react to that statement of Paul. You can either say, it's not fair, or you can say, praise God for his sovereignty, for he does all things right. We don't know where it works in God's heart, but it's, God is very clear. So we are in no position to judge God by our limited wisdom and our inadequate standards. But, is this, in fact, what he does? Is this what the text teaches? What does the word of God as a whole teach? Does it teach that men are able to choose God, but that God singles some out whose mind he closes, who therefore do not believe and who are therefore damned? Or is it that men begin by being unable to choose God, And God intervenes and graciously opens some eyes to see the truth 
and embrace it. And as a result, the objects of God's gracious intervention are saved. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. We read that again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at that day. Do you realize this morning that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you were lost on your way to a Christless eternity. But because of his great mercy, he opened your eyes. He drew your heart. He shed his love on you. It's not by any works you could do. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough for it. You can't give enough money for it. It is a totally free gift. And it's only done by God. So you sit here this morning as a child of God, realizing that your eternity is secure. Does that not motivate you to live for him? Does that not motivate you to order your life in your private world according to his will? Does that not motivate you to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I surrender to you. Take my life, make of it what you want. That's the power of that verse. He also said in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You talk about security. You've heard me say this many times. We're not good enough to save ourselves. We're sure not good enough to keep ourselves saved. Amen? When you trust Christ, you're still human. You still live in a sin-cursed world. You still have a sin-cursed body. You still have a sin-cursed heart and attitude. It's been redeemed. It's been washed in the blood. Your eternity is free, but you're still subject to, the, to those difficult times. But he says that when you come, he will never, ever cast you out. That's mega love. And consequently, in terms of salvation, it is hardly necessary for God to blind anyone. For men begin blind and come to Christ only when he intervenes to give them sight. So here's what we need to know. And I want you to notice that our passage, John does not begin with a quotation from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 about blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts. He begins with a statement that even though Jesus did so many wonderful things, they still would not believe in him. That is, he begins with their unbelief. It's only after this that he notes that God hardens their hearts lest they should see and be converted. In other words, this is a judicial activity. In the beginning, they would not believe. Afterwards, they could not also, we should not reason from God's blinding of eyes to unbelief because of the preceding verses. Jesus warned his listeners not to reject the light, arguing that if they reject the light, an even greater darkness then would now be known to them and come upon them. This is not a darkness that causes unbelief, but rather a darkness that results from it. It is a working out of God's just law by which faith, to an even, which faith leads to greater faith 
and unbelief leads to greater unbelief. Paul spoke in Romans 1 about sinners who God gave them over to their sin. If God does this, these are spiritual judgments. It is a result of refusing to heed the light. In all of this, there is a solemn affirmation of human responsibility and an even more solemn warning that transpires when the light of God goes unheeded. Because of unbelief, God gave Israel up to darkness. Could this be true of you? If so, please be warned by this teaching. Having said all this, the problem still remains. We have concluded that God does not specifically keep some men and women from believing on Jesus, but rather elects some to salvation as an overflowing of his mercy. God's hardening of hearts is a judicial hardening of those who have already turned from the light and walk in darkness. But why, we might ask, does he not just save everyone? Romans chapter 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? This is perhaps the greatest of all mysteries. We simply must confess our limited understanding. You and I can never fully understand the mind of God. We can only know by faith it's perfect. His will is just. On the other hand, while we do not understand the matter perfectly, there is at least, in this particular case, some suggestions by which we may, we may discern some of God's purpose. To begin with, the first uh, uh, paragraph quoted from Isaiah is from the chapter in which the death of our Lord Jesus Christ is fully prophesied. Isaiah shows that he was to be rejected by his people and therefore to be crucified. He also shows that as a result of this rejection, the Messiah was to be the savior of a greater number of people. How could Jesus have died as he did unless the nation of Israel rejected him? In this case, then, the blinding of Israel becomes the means by which the light of God shines from the cross. It is also true that it was by the blinding of Israel that the gospel extended to the, all the nations of the world. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, notice, until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. Israel was hardened so you and I could have Christ. Man, that ought to just make your heart go crazy. Israel is God's chosen people. But he made a way for you and for I. And it is an amazing truth that should cause you to just fall on your face and praise him every day of the reality of his amazing love. And the other good thing is I can tell you exactly when he's coming back. Now you're going, uh-oh. Craig, nobody knows the day, nobody knows the time. People have been debating that for 2,000 years. But I 
can tell you on the authority of the word of God exactly when he's coming. You want to know? Look at our verse again, 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, notice, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the last person chosen before the foundation of the world accepts Christ, that's when he's coming. It could be today. It could be 100 years from now. I don't know when it's going to be. The Bible says no man knows the hour. In fact, even the angels don't even know. And many theologians think Jesus doesn't know. But at the appointed time, the Father will say, go and get your bride. And that is an amazing truth that you and I have. You see, he made a covenant with Israel. He never made a covenant with the church. Because of Israel's unbelief, he opened it up to the church. We are the bride of Christ. And quite frankly, that's why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because I believe that the church will be taken out prior and the tribulation is for the Jews and that's the time when God is going to once again offer his covenant and fulfillment. That's why there's 144,000 Jews witnessing during the tribulation, not Gentiles and other people. We will be taken out. We will be presented to the bridegroom. We will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then we will come back with him to rule and reign. So... What are we supposed to do? Are we to live in fear? Are are we to look at the world around us and cower in fear? No, here's exactly what you and I are to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We were given a command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus went back to heaven, but he gave you and I his spirit. We are now the lights of the world. And, and you don't put a light under a bushel, as Matthew tells us. And you don't hide a lamp on top of a hill. It shines brightly. So you and I are to walk in a very dark world, being lights, showing forth the love of Jesus Christ. He must increase, and we must decrease. So we should go from here in full excitement and full joy and in the power of the Spirit to be the light of the world. Because to many people, you're the only gospel they'll ever read. So what is the gospel according to you? He didn't give us a spirit of fear. He didn't give us a spirit to hide away and protect. He gave us the spirit to go out and shine in the world. And I trust that's what you do. And as we look at these truths and we we get them in our heads and we understand his immense mercy, we now come to the Lord's table. And we can begin to think and meditate that as we take the bread and the cup, the symbol of his body broken and his blood shed, that all of this theology that's tough to pack into our heads, the one thing we know is that he died to pay for our sins. And we do this as a reminder of what he's done. This cup and this bread is a representation to you and I of that death he suffered 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary because he opened your eyes, because he offered his son to you. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you only have one of two choices. You can reject it, 
and go out and may never have the opportunity again. Or you may accept him and allow him to change your life and know that your eternity is secure. And you may be here a Christian and you just say, man, you know, this is so important, but my life is just not where he wants it to be. And I need to surrender that too. And we're going to take a moment now and just meditate and ask God to convict our hearts, to do his work in our hearts. And as we do, ask the men to come and and prepare for communion. But just radiate in the understanding that God loves you with a cross. them to understand that you are love itself. I pray that you would just keep our hearts close now as we partake in this communion.
I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you do proclaim the lord's death until he comes and is our custom we'll all stand together and join hands we'll sing a hymn in closing this morning
encourage us, strengthen us, allow us to know that you desire to live through us and to control us, that we might be used of you to show the light of Jesus Christ in a dying world. We'll praise you in advance for what you're going to do. And all God's people said, Amen.